Welcome to Nighttime. I'm Dave Wager, your host here in the studios at Silver Birch Ranch on the campus of the Nicolet Bible Institute. Hopefully for the next half hour we can talk calmly about things in life from a biblical perspective. As I always remind you that these are moments where we are talking calmly, but I'm just telling you things I'm thinking about and hopefully spurring your thoughts on to think about things as you enter the evening or go to sleep or just having a quiet moment of reflection. The most important thing you could ever do is go into God's Word and know what He says. So if that's what you end up doing, then we're successful at what we do. Some have noticed I don't really respond well if I'm written to or talked to about whatever is said on the program because the goal is not that you hear me, the goal is that you hear God. And I probably will tell you that I'm still learning and growing and becoming who I should be, so I'm not sure that everything I say is absolutely perfectly right. The fun part is I know that God is right 100% of the time, and if I actually understand the scriptures, I understand truth, and I understand the truth that sets me free at that point. Well, the last program that we were together on, I was talking about the book of Philippians, and if you are just downloading this episode and you missed the last one, I would encourage you to go back and get that one first as we went into Philippians and began talking about Paul's book to the Philippians. In the last episode, we went through verses 1 to 11, so tonight I'd like to start with verse 12 and read the next section to you. Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest of my imprisonment for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of a selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. That's a rather interesting statement. This passage, Philippians 1, 12 through 17, is an informative kind of passage to the brothers in Christ that the Apostle Paul is talking to here in Philippi. He wants them to know something, and he starts off saying that, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's interesting that he has to say that I want you to know this because there must be some other communication happening out there apart from that. I think that happens a lot in evangelical circles. We gossip and talk about things that maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we really don't know the whole story. We'd like to know the whole story. We somehow get our significance from knowing the whole story. And so we tell people what we know, and that becomes a half-truth or a sort of truth or even gossip. 
there are very few people that actually know what's going on in certain situations. My wife and I, as we talk in the privacy of our home, we know what's going on in our home, but nobody else does. They have to look from the outside. They have to listen to clues, and they have to surmise certain things. They may know the truth, but they may not because they're not really in a position where they can know it. I think that there are so many people who get their personal significance from trying to be in the know. They need to go and know the details, and if they know the details, they feel like they're very important in the kingdom or very important to those other people. When in reality, we don't know. God is the only one that knows everything. If you're trying to be significant in life because of knowing everything, knowing more than anyone else, then I think you're actually trying to take on a characteristic of God. Only God knows everything. You and I, on a regular basis, need to admit that we are limited in our understanding and limited in our knowledge. But God is not. For me not to be satisfied with the limited title is going to get me in trouble. You can tell me about your life, and I realize that the only thing that I know is what you told me about your life. I also know that as you tell me about your life, that you're going to spin it a certain way, that you have a certain perspective, that you have a certain understanding, and you're going to live in the context of that. If I were to talk to a sibling of yours, or your mom or dad, or your spouse, they might tell me a little bit different of a twist of that. In reality, I really don't know everything that's going on, even though I would like to pretend I do. You see, the only one that actually knows everything, the way it really is, is God. That's why, after you talk to me, the safest thing I could do is go to God and talk to Him about you. I can release you to Him knowing that he actually knows everything about you. And I don't know everything about you. I don't need to know everything about you. I have seen people who have tried to show interest in others who keep trying to get more and more information from them in the guise that they need to help. That may be a very important thing. I'm not sure. But I do know that every single human that I ever met has the same problem. We're all sinful. I do know that God's mercy and grace is available. I know that whatever God says is correct. I know that if I align my life with anything other than what God says, I'm going to be wrong. And therefore, I can push people in that direction. But I don't know everything about them. I don't know their motives. I'm not even sure they know their motives. If you were to come to me and ask me if I have bad motives for some decision, I would tell you, no, I have a good motive. Yet, I think I do have a good motive, but maybe I don't. And I need God to work in my heart to convict me of something because I'm living a lie. Satan is really good at that, and I think I could be really good at it too. I think I would feel terrible about lying to you, but I really don't mind lying to me. Well, the Apostle Paul starts in the 12th verse by saying, I, I want you to know something, brothers. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, 
once again, the Apostle Paul tended to get beat up quite a bit, thrown in jail, had things happen to him that really didn't happen to anybody else. The resistance that the Apostle Paul experienced was incredible. Yet, it's not unusual for somebody who's really significant in the kingdom work to find resistance at a very high level. Their trust has to be in God. They need to see God as the only answer, and the Apostle Paul did. The analogy that you have is somebody who plays sports. If we're playing a basketball team and they have an extremely good player, we need to guard that player with more than one person. I understand there's only five out on the floor at a time for each team. Yet if there's a really significant player, I need to take two of my players and make sure that that player doesn't beat us. You see, the more skillful somebody is in the sport in which they play, the more the other team has to put extra resources on that person to try and stop them from beating their team. Those who actually love God and walk with him, Satan recognizes that. And he ups the ante to try and destroy you. That's how it works. Therefore, there are people today who are doing everything the way they should. They're loving God. They're walking with God. They're enjoying who God is. And in the process, it looks like they're getting beat up and losing. There might be people that shake their head at them. There might have been people who were shaking their head at the Apostle Paul and saying, if he would just be quiet once in a while, you wouldn't have this problem. If he would stop trying to interfere with everybody, he'd be okay. Those people didn't understand what Paul's assignment was. My mind could go back to people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who probably suffered the same way. You see, here are three young men that decided they were going to do what's right. They were in a very powerful position in the kingdom but they refused to bow. Now, I don't know this, but I assume that there were several people in the crowd who were also God-fearers, but they didn't fear God enough. They feared the king more than God. They feared the flames more than God. And I am assuming, I'm just guessing, that they probably would look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and shake their head in disgust. They could be thinking that finally they got people that were God-fearers in a very crucial position in the government. And look, they can't even pretend to bow. If they would only compromise a little bit that we would have people in high positions, instead, the people were probably thinking, now you're just going to get burned up and we're back to square one where people in those powerful positions don't even know God. But it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who knew God and this fiery furnace trial that was going to happen was going to be critical for showing Nebuchadnezzar who God is. The Apostle Paul was saying, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The Apostle Paul is letting those who are concerned about him know this is something God's in control of and the Imperial Guard and everybody I come in contact with is getting to know Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thing? 
Paul is and was a missionary. He's doing the job that God wants him to by representing him no matter where he goes. He just happens to be in jail. It's become known to everyone why he's in jail, so they're all watching him, wondering who this follower of Christ really is and what he's about. What the Apostle Paul is doing is telling all of those who are concerned about him that God is still in charge. He's still got a plan, and the plan is to let people know who God is no matter where I am. And when I'm in prison, I get to let to know the guards who God is. And when I'm standing before a king, I get to tell the king who God is. So in essence, we're winning. No matter what they did to the Apostle Paul, they couldn't win this one because of his attitude. Think about that. If you were the Apostle Paul, can you imagine, or if you were a soldier trying to persecute him, you, you beat him. That doesn't work. You, he gets in a shipwreck. That doesn't work. You put him in prison. It doesn't work. Finally, you have to have committee meetings and try and figure out what can we do to the Apostle Paul to make him so that he quits following Jesus. He's frustrating us. No matter what we do, he says he wins. He doesn't win. Look at him in prison. Look at him beat. But I can imagine then that the Apostle Paul would look up at his captors and say, Do you know Jesus? And say, no, Ah, I win again. You see, the Apostle Paul had a mind frame where he understood that God was in charge and that at any moment he could have him free from that prison, any moment. But he wasn't free right now. He had an assignment to do. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Then he goes on to say the ripple effect is even greater than that. There are people who are now bolder to speak the name of Christ because of the punishment that I have taken. The the imprisonment of Paul the punishment that he has taken has ignited a flame in some people to go out and be faithful to God. And the Apostle Paul is saying, this is great. There are people out there who are more bold now than ever to talk about God's love, his grace, his mercy, and bring Jesus to the masses. 15th verse, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. He now identifies two different groups out there. There are some that do this because they love God, and there are some that do it because they're jealous. They've built a rivalry with me. I can imagine there are preachers who were trying to be like Billy Graham when Billy Graham was in his heyday. And, and they were bolder, and they would hold crusades possibly and go do the things that Billy Graham did. And, I'm sure it didn't bother Billy Graham. More people hearing the gospel, no matter what the motivation is, God can still use donkeys to speak for him. It's not that he has to have people that are perfectly balanced to speak for him. He can have others speak if he wants them to. The Apostle Paul understood who was in charge. And he identified those who preach from envy, but those who also preach from rivalry, and those who would preach for a good reason. 
But he talks about those who didn't do it right. He said the latter do it out of love. Those who do it out of goodwill, that's good for them. They're doing it because they love people. Knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking to afflict me in my prison. Not sincere, but thinking they're going to inflict Paul in the, in the prison, make his life more miserable. It indicates here that there were people that were among the that-day evangelicals, if you want to call it, that basically were saying, well, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. You need to listen to me. And now that Paul got arrested, perhaps in their theology, it was if he's really representing God, God would have protected him, and he wouldn't have been arrested. I, I don't know what their theology was. But their ambition was not to show people who God was. Their ambition was to somehow be praised themselves in what was going on. Verse 18 starts to say, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live the flesh, that means faithful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy and faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but for, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. It's a powerful section, verses 18 all the way to 30. In chapter 1, he goes on to just say, What then, in, in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed? His mind is very focused. I want people to understand God's love. I want them to understand what Christ did for them. And whatever your motive is for preaching, if you're preaching the gospel, I'm applauding it. Now, he's also admitting, I think, that he can't tell people's motives because. You can't. I don't know what your motive is today. You don't know what my motive is for doing the nighttime program. I can tell you what I think it is, and you can tell me what you think yours is, but we tend to lie to ourselves. The Apostle Paul was very focused. He was thrilled 
that the word of God was being preached for whatever reason. I know that there's Bibles being sent in places where they don't want Bibles right now because of the persecution. I don't know why people are delivering the Bibles. They may think that they're gaining you know, points with God or whatever it might be, but I tell you that I'm thrilled that Bibles are being delivered. That's kind of what the Apostle Paul is saying. I'm, I'm thrilled at the Word of God. I'm thrilled that mercy, God's mercy, God's grace is being explained. Quit condemning people because of their motives. You don't even know what their motives are. God will take care of that. In the 19th verse, he talks about, I know that through your prayers and help, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Eventually, I know that things will work out where I'm not enslaved by these people anymore. Eventually, that will happen. In eternity, he's going to be as free as can be. It's his eager expectation in verse 20 and hope that he will not be ashamed. It's interesting that he says that because we would all look at the Apostle Paul as, oh, it's impossible for you to be ashamed. But he said, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored. Whether it, honored in my body, whether by life or death. The Apostle Paul had a very specific goal. I want to honor God in my life and in my death. No matter what happens, I want to honor God. And that's his great fear, is that he wouldn't at some point. So he sets his life up so that no matter what happens in life, he would represent the king. And he gives us the key to his thinking in 21st and 22nd verse. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Can I say that? Can you say that and honestly mean it? For me to live is Christ. And if you say that, what proof do you have to yourself that you're telling the truth? For me to live is Christ. And if you die, you would actually consider it a gain. The Apostle Paul had a very laser focus in life. And anyone that has a laser focus on God's plan is going to be okay no matter what the circumstances of life really are. If I am to live in the flesh, that means faithful, fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He said, if I'm going to keep living, if, if this does not end in them taking my life, that means I have labor to do, fruitful labor. I, I don't know what it is God wants right now. I'm not sure if he wants to take me out of this world or he's got a job for me to complete. In the 23rd verse, he says, I'm really hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ. For that is far better. He said, honestly, with when I look at the options that are laid out before me, my greatest desire is to leave this crazy world and be with Christ. That's my desire. But to be very honest, I'm pressed between the two because I see what God is doing in my life. I see what he is accomplishing right now. And it could be that it's important that I'm here, that I'm in prison, that I'm writing this letter to you. 
It could be that my job here on this planet is not complete, and I need to complete the job that God sent me to do. So even though my desire is to depart and be with Christ, and that is far better, I also desire to remain in the flesh because it's more necessary on your account. Jesus Christ came in the flesh because it was necessary on our account. Can you imagine what he gave up in order to do that? The Apostle Paul was in a mind frame where no matter where he went, he got tossed around, he got beat up, he got, he had to fight the church and gossip and slander and, and people who were jealous. He had to fight the pagans and, and the fact that he was calling God, God, and they didn't agree. He fought the system. He was in jail. He got beat up. He got shipwrecked. It'd be a whole lot nicer for him to say, my job is finished. I'm getting out of here. I don't want to do this anymore. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He says, I am convinced that I'm not leaving right now. And I'm also convinced that I'll come to you. And that I, I can still be a source of joy to you when I get out of this prison. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ. Once again, he says, my life in your presence will be one that you can look to Jesus and understand and glorify him. In the 27th verse, he gets to where he really gives an exhortation. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of, your, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He says, I want you to know that you need to live in a way that reflects who Christ is. There is a way where you live, and you need to live in that manner, so that whether I come and see you or I don't see you, people see God in you because of who you are. And I'm not frightened by your opponents. Don't don't be frightened by your opponents because their anger is a clear sign to them of their destruction. But when you do what's right, you'll be opposed, and it's a clear sign to you that you're not going to be destroyed. For it has been granted, verse 29, to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him but also to suffer for him. There is no possible way that you can live your life on this earth and not suffer if you live in a way that represents God and the truth. Suffering is relative, I understand that. In different cultures, in different places, suffering could be identified differently. I get it. But when you love God, 
You also have an absolute in your life, and those who don't have an absolute will do everything in their power to get you away from it. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you won't regret the fact that you listen to God. Not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. He's looking at the next generation, saying, you need to be engaged in the same battle I am for the same purpose that I have had. And if you do that, I can guarantee you that life can get rough. It got rough for Jesus. It's been rough for me. It'll be rough for you. But if you keep your eyes where they belong, you'll be okay. Once again, I thank you for investing in the half hour we call nighttime. I encourage you to read Philippians chapter 1. And perhaps we'll continue in nighttime and see if we can get through the book of Philippians someday. But for now, thanks for the time. Good night. Thank you.